prone to wander. We are, indeed, as God's people. We're going to read about that this morning from the gospel, or from, not the gospel. Well, it is a gospel. It does have hope in it. From the prophecies of Jeremiah. That's our scripture reading this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You're going to find it in that part of the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 2. And before we read God's word, let's pray together and ask for the blessing and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, King of glory, we praise you that you reveal yourself in the book of creation, but also in this book, the Bible. And as we open the scriptures this morning and hear words spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, we pray, Lord, that these may be words that are not just spoken by a man, but that we may hear that these are words spoken by you, the Lord, the judge, the king, the giver of life. And so speak to us, we pray, through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, that is to Jeremiah. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest all who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask. Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us to the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. And look Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Its gods? 
yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Tephanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves for forsaking? by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Sheor? Why go to Assyria and drink water from the river? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord. The Lord Almighty. So far the reading of God's Word, the Word of the Lord. And if you just kind of go ahead for a moment over a few chapters, then you will see that Jeremiah's, or God's charge against Israel continues for, for a few chapters. But we're going to leave it at the first 19 verses of chapter 2 of Jeremiah. <coughs> Brothers and sisters in Christ, last week, Pastor Amanda, as we began this series, Pastor Amanda introduced us to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. His father, Hilkiah, was a priest, and therefore Jeremiah was probably well acquainted with the rituals and the ceremonies of the temple as he was growing up. Called to be a prophet even before he was born, it was during the time of the king, of the reign of King Josiah who took his throne at age eight, that the word of the Lord came to the teenager, Jeremiah. And in spite of all of his protests, Jeremiah was sent by the Lord to the people of Israel with a pretty tough message. And we get a little taste of that this morning in chapter two. And all of this happened shortly after a copy of the book of the law had been found and Josiah instituted a number of reforms in Israel in line with what God had expected of his people. The revival of Israel lasted for a bit but didn't really take deep root in the lives of the people or in the rules of the king or in the rule of the kings that followed Josiah. Kings like Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and finally Zedekiah. The testimony of 2 Kings 25, where you read more about that, this particular period of time in Israel's history, the testimony of 2 Kings 25 concerning each of these final kings of Judah was that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as their fathers had done. And it's in the midst of this collapsing revival under Josiah and the evil reigns of the last three kings that Jeremiah spoke God's word. 
You know, it's never easy to speak the word of the Lord in a world that rejects him or that doesn't even acknowledge that he exists. It must have been tough for Jeremiah to open his mouth and to start speaking, but then the words that he was speaking were God's words, and God promised him that in spite of the fact that he was going to receive opposition, yet the Lord would protect him and the Lord would rescue him. The ministry that Jeremiah was called to required great faith and incredible trust because as we come to know from the rest of this book, and I hope you're taking the time to read the book of Jeremiah throughout this time, Jeremiah was in for an incredibly rough ride. He was up against kings. He was up against false prophets. He was up against a people who were ingrained in a pagan sort of worldview, a people who didn't really want to hear that what they were believing or what they were involved with was somehow contrary to the will of God. He was speaking to a people who abandoned their God. They were a people who were not open to hearing that their involvement and their behavior and their belief system was not life-giving, but it was deadening. Jeremiah was up against a people who were all about the darkness and the deadness of life as depicted by the lower part of that banner on the wall to your right. They were a people who were not firmly planted by the streams of living water and therefore blossoming as depicted by the upper part of the banner. You know, I've always found it an interesting, to be an interesting reality throughout my years of ministry that people do this. I've watched people make choices and decisions and taken actions in life that were more destructive to them in terms of relationships or family or health or their standing in the community or whatever than they were life-giving. These people were more about the darkness than they were about life. And yet it's always been interesting to me that when challenged, they didn't see their perspective as destructive or dead-ended. They didn't see how their decisions negatively impacted others. They only saw what it was doing for them. And after all, it's all about them. And so they were often only interested in their own peace of mind, their own happiness, in taking the easy way out. Let's face it, we often think in times of deep distress or struggle or fight or battle or whatever that it's better to take the easy way out rather than to sort out what God might have to say about something in his word and then be obedient to that. So there have been so many times and throughout my ministry that I've watched people make decisions for themselves without at all considering that the Lord may have something to say about who we marry what our calling may be in life, about what it means to raise a family in the name of Christ, or about how we ought to live with our neighbor, or how we ought to be citizens of the land, or what may be appropriate or inappropriate leisure activities, or what may or not be appropriate use of our money, 
or our computers or our electronic devices or about what our education looks like or about what to do when our marriage is in trouble or when parenting becomes an issue or what to do when there's serious illness that affects us or how to deal with the reality of war or the environment or wow the list is endless and in my experience sad to say I've often noted that our tendency is to seek what pleases us and what makes life easy for us rather than to seek for what pleases the Lord and what we might need to do according to his will which sometimes is much more difficult anyway in spite of all the temple rituals and in spite of all the Old Testament rituals that the priests of Israel carried out and that the people apparently adhered to, the reality was that the Lord, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, had taken a back seat in life. This was at a time of history when the living Lord of Israel seemed to have very little say in the life of the people of Israel. They were doing their own thing, so to speak, with little regard for God. And so in chapter 2, things become serious. Jeremiah is told to go and proclaim the word of the Lord to all of Jerusalem. Mind you, it begins with some positive statements. I hope you noticed that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bibles open, it's helpful. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. The language used is that of a young couple newly married, deeply in love, ready to do whatever, it, whatever they have to without much question. Newlyweds have a tendency to do that, starry-eyed, they, they trust one another implicitly and just go along for the new adventures. And it's often in the Bible that God's people are likened to the bride, with God being the groom. And the bride was so in love with God and he so in love with her that she followed him through the desert or through the valley of the shadow of death. She followed him in faith and trust and hope and joy in spite of the deadness and the danger all about. She followed the Lord God out of Egypt and in and throughout the wilderness. Israel enjoyed a living, deep, heartfelt relationship with their covenant God. It was special and God remembered how it was. Verse 3, Isaiah or Israel was holy set apart, sacred to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. The language speaks of Israel's special status, God's chosen people. The first fruits of the harvest were always brought to the Lord as a gift to him for the harvest to follow. The first fruits, those first fruits were a sacrifice of thanks and praise. They were special. They were the best of the crops that would follow. That's Israel the best of the crops of all those that would follow. She was special. As a result, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. All who attacked Israel, God's special covenant people, suffered loss and punishment. And there's many stories in the Old Testament that speak of how God protected his people from destruction. 
not the least of which is the Passover, the escape from Egypt through the Red Sea and the destruction of the armies of Egypt. And after that long journey, the Lord allowed his bride to flourish in the land flowing with milk and honey. So as he begins his charge against Israel, he begins with these beautiful words. I remember, there was a time, says the Lord, that I remember that things were good. There was peace, there was shalom in the land. You were my beloved bride. We lived together and it was marvelous. But then in verse 4, we read that something had obviously gone terribly wrong. Young love turned to betrayal and unfaithfulness. The perfect marriage had gone sour, and the Lord, like a jilted lover, asks questions of his bride. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? What did I say that led you to reject me, asked the Lord. Was it something I did? And what makes these, those gods of other lands, seem more worth following than me, asked the Lord. Indeed, the gods of wood and stone, really no gods at all, I hope you note that in this passage, really no gods at all, seem to have a deeper attraction for the people of Israel than the living God. Go figure. How can that be, asked the Lord. It's interesting that the charge was similar to the charge leveled against the church in Ephesus as recorded in Revelation 2. Jesus said to the church, This I have against you. You have forsaken your first love. Israel had forsaken its first love. And in verses 6 through 8, the Lord observes that the people of Israel and the priests and the very ones who deal with the law of God do not even seek the Lord anymore. They don't ask the Lord for advice in spite of the fact that he was the one who led Israel from death in Egypt and the wilderness to life in the promised land. At this time, priests are going through the motions. Leaders are rebelling against the kingship of the Lord and prophets are speaking the supposed words of Baal, of Baal, a useless man-made God. And because of that, the Lord drags his people into a court of law, as it were. And he lays legal charges against them. In verses 10 and following, it's like the Lord is incredulous and wants all of creation to be witness to it and to be appalled and to shudder with horror because something has happened to Israel that has not been duplicated by any other nations. Has there ever been anything like this? People, have you ever seen such a thing as what Israel has done? Creation, have you ever seen such a thing as Israel has done? Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. Have those who worshipped Baal ever changed gods? Have those who worshipped Ra, the sun god, ever changed gods? And the answer to these rhetorical questions is, no, of course not. 
Nations may add to their list of gods, but they don't change the gods. They don't fire their gods. But now get this, my people. And you could almost hear the Lord say, my people who have been called by my name, my covenant people bearing the sign of my covenant, my bride, my first fruits, my holy people, my beloved, my special people. You have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Get this, nations of the world. Get this, heavens. Get this, all of creation. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Get this. The very God who, as the Belgic Confession puts it, is the overflowing source of all good. He has been dumped. He has been fired for some figure made out of wood or stone. This is stunning. How can this be? And the way in which it's written here in Jeremiah 2 is intended to make the people sit up and listen to how absurd it sounds. This is nuts. God's bride running away with another. God's bride heading down the road in the arms of another lover for not not for one moment considering the consequences of such an action. The idolatry of Israel was clearly demonstrated through her adultery. That the commandments of the Lord were being broken left, right, and center didn't seem to impress the people at all. That their worship was just ritualistic claptrap and of no meaning at all didn't seem to speak to the people of all, at all. That God, who had cared for them in the past, that God, who had made a special covenant relationship with them and even marked it in their flesh, that they had left that God, didn't seem to speak to the people at all. They were on their own trajectory, living life according to their own pleasure. Feels good, do it living according to their own will and not at least life-giving. But that didn't seem to affect them. It's all so very human, sad to say. Some of you here this morning hearing all of this about Israel's unfaithfulness know all too well from your own lives and relationships what this is all about and know all too well how devastating it can be to have a relationship broken into by another. The consequences are great and they are endless. One person has written an article de de delineating 100 consequences of adultery. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 100 consequences. But the one committing the sin often tends to consider their own life and not the hundred consequences. It's the way it was with Israel. 
the Lord continued his word through the prophet Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Two, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Verse 13. Fascinating verse. If you've ever been to the physical land of Israel, then you will know how much of the land is wilderness. And by wilderness, I mean like really dry, barren land. You're hard-pressed to find land like that here in Canada. I really don't know where I would go for that, maybe in north of the tundras someplace. Water is a precious commodity in modern-day Israel as it was a precious commodity in Jeremiah's day. If you had water rights, you were rich and safe and secure. And so I remember when my wife and I were in Israel, our trip included a trip to a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is an oasis near the Dead Sea where David fled when he was hiding from King Saul. Anyway, at En Gedi, there is a spring. There is a waterfall, a stream of clear, cool, fresh water in the midst of a very dry, dusty, thirsty land. Now on the way up to En Gedi, on the way to this oasis, you have to climb the hillsides from the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea is behind you and you have to climb up quite a ways into uh, to where En Gedi is. You climb up with your back to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is exactly what its name suggests. It's dead. Nothing grows in it. Nothing lives in it. The salt content is so high that you can't sink. We tried. Didn't work. Anyway, in that dry and thirsty land, the Dead Sea shimmers. And it's really fascinating to see when you're driving around there in all the dust and all the, all the wilderness that all of a sudden there's this massive body of water, much smaller than what it used to be in the Bible times. But it shimmers. And it's attractive because it's water. But that water doesn't support life. It doesn't encourage life. But the waters of Engedi are clear and cool and clean, but it takes a whole lot of effort to get up to them. The waters of the Dead Sea are easy to get to. When the Lord used the terminology of the people forsaking him for cisterns and water from Egypt and other places, as stated in verse 18, it's almost like the people of Israel decided that the water of the Dead Sea, hey, that's good. That's much more attractive than the waters of En Gedi. They like the dead stuff better than the living water of En Gedi. It's easier to get to. Now, the Bible often uses the imagery of water when talking about the Lord and about his saving grace. Water is a symbol of cleansing, of life, and of hope. We heard something about that in the baptism, of, of, in the sacrament of baptism uh, this morning. So in Isaiah 55, we began the service. We hear the Lord saying, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. 
Jesus echoes those words in John 4 in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus was sitting at the well when a Samaritan woman arrived to draw water and he asked her for a drink. And after an exchange, Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water, that is the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And elsewhere, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in Revelation 21, we read Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To those who are thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then there are those endless images in the Bible from Genesis of the waters providing life in the garden in the Psalms, like Psalm 1 of trees, trees being nourished by water, such as on the banner, and finally in Revelation of the streams of living water flowing from the throne, providing life to the world. God offers the living water to his people. He provides clear, flowing streams of water in Engedi. You have forsaken me, the spring of living water. You've dug your own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That's God's charge against his covenant people. They went for water elsewhere, to Egypt, to Assyria, both rich and powerful nations, nations that could give them all kinds of things. They went to cisterns, which don't provide clear, clean water, but instead brackish water after some time, and they don't retain water well because they leak. And so rather than trusting the Lord, the covenant God, the true God, the only living God, the people of Israel went elsewhere. God had been faithful to his part of the deal, but the people of Israel were unfaithful, guilty of idolatry and therefore adultery. You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord had told his people in no uncertain terms, but now that's exactly what they were doing, having other gods, not even living ones, dead ones. It's so absurd. Isaiah talks about that too. Can you imagine that you chop down a tree, you use half of that tree trunk for firewood, you keep warm and you say, ah, that feels good, and you bake your bread with it. The other half of that tree trunk that you just chopped down, you make into an altar, you make it into some kind of a, craft it into some kind of a god, and you set it up, and you bow before it and you give your life to it. How can that be? That's nuts use a vernacular term. The consequences of all of this is found in verse 19. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord Almighty. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To the church of Ephesus, Jesus said, if you do not repent, I will come to you 
and remove your lampstand from its place. I will discipline you, and it may mean removal from my presence, says the Lord. Israel was called to account by the judge of all creation. They were called to repentance to consider how serious their sin was. The prophecies of Jeremiah remind us of our covenant God, of our living covenant God, and how seriously he takes the relationship he has with us, his people. This morning in the sacrament of baptism, we were once again reminded of God's covenant promises. Oh, no, people of God, that the Lord takes those promises seriously and he takes the relationship that he has with his people seriously. In him is life. In him is hope. In him is peace. Oh, Church of Christ, don't exchange it for another. Amen. Oh, Lord God, the charges that you brought against your people are harsh. But then what your people did as laid out in Jeremiah 2, is harsh as well. Rejecting you as the living covenant Lord. Oh God, we pray for the church today, a church around the world. We pray that that church may be alive and may be making a difference and may not be falling for other gods. Protect us, O Lord, through the working of your Holy Spirit. Where you convict us of sin, allow us, the Holy Spirit and your grace, to repent, change, to turn around. We bow before you, the only true living Lord and King, and we adore you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that all idols in our lives may be cast aside. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.